0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 2. If you need a Bible, our ushers have one for you, so just slip your hand up and they will uh, make sure you get one. Romans chapter 2. Feels good to say chapter 2, doesn't it? (laughs) I have a confession to make. I don't I don't have a very exciting life. I um, don't go anywhere. I don't really do anything. My wife is bored of me. I'm certain. Um, I drive a seven-mile circle from here to home. That's kind of what I do. I don't even go to movies that often. I do watch some, though, right? They're on TV. You have the advantage of all that. And my kid came out yesterday, and he started stacking all the DVDs that he says he bought. We're still going to debate about that, but it's about that high. It made me realize, man, we just have a lot of entertainment and. What makes a movie interesting? Things like uh, Fear, maybe. Maybe that's your deal. Or Love Stories, which isn't necessarily my deal. Or, or, or the one about vengeance. Like there seems, to be, there seems to be a theme in really great movies where they portray the bad guy so bad and the good guy so noble. You can't wait till the end where it's all made right. You know what I mean? And I thought for a reason uh, for a while that I, that's predominantly a guy thing you know, spe- specifically because these movies have a lot of gore in them sometimes, you know. and So a prayer meeting on Wednesday night, I was talking to a young couple. They're probably in their mid-30s, and uh, I won't mention their name. Um, and somehow we got on the subject of movies, and specifically movies that have this theme in it, like vengeance, right, or or bad people paying. And I looked at this this girl, and I saw this twinkle in her eye, and I go, really? Like, you're like me? Like, it's not just a guy thing? It's It's kind of universally true that girls like the the whole justice thing too. And, and I, th- I thought that was a funny, interesting uh, thought, especially in light of where we're at in Romans chapter 2. Because everyone can witness evil. And you can even have a follow-up feeling like somebody needs to pay for evil. And that's, that's kind of universally true, like when you saw the bombing at the uh, Boston Marathon. I don't know anybody who didn't see that and say, wrong, wrong. And somebody needs to pay. Somebody needs to, to stop this. Um, we want justice. But there is a particular problem if you're willing to be honest about this whole perception of evil and a, and desire for justice, in that that whole perspective gets lost when it comes to us, right? So if someone hurts us, I can see that. When someone does something really evil and hurts many, I can see that, and then declare, you know, something should happen. But when I'm the perpetrator of the evil, when it's on me, um, sometimes I don't even see it. And many times I justify it and excuse it, and I never want justice, (laughs) right? I never declare, God, stop me, dead in my tracks. I never say that. Well, this section in in Romans chapter 2 is all about judgment, it's it's a discussion from Paul's vantage point of the judgment of sin, man's judgment of sin, God's judgment of sin, and then this little funny little tweak of God's judgment of man's judgment of sin. So we want to spend some time looking at it, but before we do, I, I want us to get caught up in the the theme or the... The, the position that Paul is in trying to explain sin and our need for a Savior. Now, sometimes we get so buried in this, right? Chapter 1, I think we did eight weeks so far in just one chapter. And, and we can dive into it so in detail we miss the big picture. So let me just go through a, just a quick blush of what we've been through so far so we understand context a little bit. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul makes this very bold, emphatic statement about the gospel. And he says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and the whole letter is about the gospel, all the details of the gospel, but he starts the message talking about the need for the gospel. And he, and he really takes us through some, some difficult stuff only to present that man's only hope Man's only salvation, man's only righteousness is Jesus. There isn't anything else to trust in. There's no other joy of man. It's all in Christ alone. In verse 18, Paul begins two chapters, 65 verses describing the problem. He does it in three particular categories. He looks at the God-denying, we would call God-hating, worldly person. And he talks about this person who who basically... um, is at war with God and doesn't even know it. He deals with now what we're about to pick up here in chapter 2, the first 11 verses. He deals with the moral good person, and I use that term loosely. These are people that really look like they're okay. From a distance, at least, uh, they, can, they can have a, a somewhat of a moral compass, a little bit of a, a rudder to their life. And then he deals with, verse 17 and following, he deals with the religious person. The person who claims that some faith or some expression of faith is what uh, matters. And so these three particular sections describe all men. And his point is to say this, everybody's in trouble. Now, I'm glad you're here if you're visiting for the first time. You've just caught us in the middle of Paul making an argument for our sinfulness, I love the conclusion. I love the punchline. The conclusion is we need Jesus, but we are in this section trying to see from God's vantage point how he views our sin, how we should view our sin, which authenticates our need for the gospel that Paul says he's not ashamed of. So in verses 18 through 32, we've seen him presenting the problem at least to the God hating, God denying person because they have a struggle. They suppress, as Paul says, they suppress or hold down the truth about God and exchange it for a lie. And they go through a series of uh, of problems and sins. I called it last week the downward spiral of sin. When God says, okay, you want sin? You want to be there? Go get it. And he kind of takes his controlling, restraining hand off mankind. And mankind goes deeper and deeper and darker and darker. And if you were going to talk about your personal life, hasn't that been true? Has there ever been a sin in your life where you go, that line right there? I'm not crossing that one. Never going to do that one. And haven't you caught yourself stepping over? And haven't you caught yourself stepping over and then re-deciding the line, where the line now moves to justify your behavior, make yourself feel okay or like everybody else? And that's simply what Paul is saying. You can't stop it. Sin has that much destruction in it, that much control in it. It it is pervasive in your life. And so he describes this God-hating, suppressing, truth, unbeliever, and he says he's traded in the truth for a lie. And he does something like worships the creation versus the creator. And and then he does things like sexual sin that are against God's word, and they don't care. And then they go to perversion in their sexual sin, to homosexuality, and then they they get really twisted. In fact, Paul says they they get this debased mind, inability to recognize right from wrong. And now they're so screwed up, they look at wrong and call it right and look at right and call it wrong. And they look at sin and sinners and go, hey, way to go. We applaud the evil in our world. And if you were to step back, even though that might have kind of cramped your style a little bit there, if you can step step back from that description and just be honest with yourself and say, well, that's what Paul says that the natural man does with sin and where he ends up apart from God, you know it's true. They, They don't worship God and they walk away from truth and the conclusion is they're under God's wrathful judgment. And this is to a group of people who say, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know God cared about sin. I didn't know I was wrong. These are people declaring innocence. But the reason why they say that is because in verse 18, they've suppressed the truth. They've denied the reality of God. So here in chapter 2, in in the first five verses, we pick up now a new perspective on guilt. And that is this, that the good and moral person is also guilty. Let, Let me read the first five verses and we'll pick this apart. Presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment, will be revealed. The beginning of chapter 2 is is written to the, got me some slack on this term, the good and the moral. The Bible says no one's good, and we're going to find that out in Romans chapter 3. But these are people, by their own assessments, comparing themselves horizontally, say, I'm not like that. These are the kind of people who heard Paul's description of sin in verses 28 through 32 and says, yeah, that's, that's wicked, and that's vile, and that's wrong, and I see it. Preach it, Paul. Bring it. Drop the hammer. Love it. These are people who see that condemnation that Paul brings to the people who deny the existence of God and say, he's right to do so. How does that feel? Right? Let me remind you what Paul says in verses 28, or let's start in verse 29 of chapter 1. This is the kind of people um, that Paul is describing. They They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So the people in chapter two hear that list and they simply say, Paul, I agree with you. I see the sin, I see it all around me. I see it and I think they need judgment. That's what I think. And it's very interesting. You can't miss it in this passage, five verses. There are seven uses of the word judge or judgment. So it's not it's not complicated to find Paul's like subject matter here. Verse two kind of captures the, the weight of it, the strength of it, if you read it with me. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls. The reason why he says that is because the judgment at least of these people these moral good people is wrong in verse 1 but god is right in his justice right when he says we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things so there is only one judge it's not you it's not me and the, and this judge the creator god of the universe he is precise he is accurate he is perfect And it's inevitable. His judgment is inevitable. That's what Paul is going to emphasize to us. So I want to pick this apart. I'm simply going to make a point per verse. So there's five particular things I want you to leave here with today. I'm calling them the absolutes of judgment just to help you get handlebars for this. The first one is this in verse 1. It's that moral man has no excuse before God. Verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Um, the person that Paul has in mind here, you ready, is the person with standards. This is a person who uh, has a good family, who uh, is a good citizen, pays his taxes, is decently honest. He lives, he's the kind of person you want living next door to you. Um, this this is a person who has good kids and a good marriage. He has rules and he sticks by them. He is the quote-unquote good moral person. And Paul says, you don't have an excuse. Does that ring a bell to you? Look look back at verse 20 of chapter 1. Paul was trying to confront the denying uh people the people that say there is no God I didn't know there was a God and here's what he says in verse 20 for God's invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have made so that they are without excuse same phrase same word same thing that Paul mentions in verse 1 of chapter 2 he's simply making a case that everyone's guilty for you to say there is no God, you're guilty. For you to say there, that, that I'm living a different life, that my life's different than those described in, in verses 28 through 32, Paul says you're still guilty. You have no excuse. No excuse before God. Paul, uh, Paul blows these people up saying that they're guilty as well and they're guilty of two things. And this will blow your mind. They're guilty of practicing the very same things and they're guilty of the hypocrisy of pretending they don't. If you go to somebody who's in the pit of, of verses 28 to 32 and say, man, does life stink? Yes, it does. Did you cause a lot of it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I hurt people and I hurt myself. I'm in it. If you go to the moral person and you say, hey, does, does, is there sin in your life? And they would, some would say, not me. I didn't do that. And if there is ever any problems, that's typically somebody else's issue, right? The hypocrisy of pretending. And Paul says, you're without excuse, it's on you. You're guilty of doing the same things and hypocrisy of doing the same things and pretending that you're not. In fact, isn't that what moral people do? They sin the same way in private. That's the difference. The sinners of chapter one, they're out loud. They don't think there's a God. They don't think there's a judgment. They don't think there's any condemnation for their behavior. But moral people go underground to do the same things. They keep their secrets. They delete their history. They do all those types of things to pretend to be something they're not because even in the pretending, they think they're better least I'm not like. So this is is something we really got to get our heads around. Probably the clearest teaching about this problem, this heart problem where all this sin comes from was Jesus when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus begins a kind of a... uh, a talk about law and then a reestablishment of God's standard. When he says these series of statements, you've heard it said, but I tell you, remember? A lot of you would remember that kind of um, process that he went through. Just a couple of His illustrations, you've heard it said to not kill, not to murder. But I tell you, if you hate someone, you have a murderer's heart. And so where God judges you in the heart, you're guilty. It doesn't sound right, does it? Like we know that there's something radically different about really killing someone and hating someone. But here's what we forget. The holiness of God has to deal with sin. Sin's source is the heart of man. When the heart of man hates, murder is one of the re- reactions. But if you've never murdered anyone, Jesus is simply saying, but you're still guilty. That's how precise God kind of sifts us. You, you could... Be gentle and take it on the cheek your entire life, but in the back of your mind, you're brewing and hating. God says, You're as guilty as the murderer. And it's the same blood of Jesus that needs to deal with it. He said, You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have an adulterer's heart. God sifts us, He measures our soul, He knows our motives and our intentions, and no one else does. There are several great um, stories in the Bible that help illustrate this tendency that we have to think that somehow if I don't do certain things or do do certain things, somehow God's going to make me the exception to the rule about sin and holiness. Um, There is the, the story of the sinful woman, the adulterous woman with Jesus in John chapter 8. You're probably familiar with this story, but in John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching at the temple. And the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, these would be a perfect description for the group of people we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, the religious, who thought that they didn't do these things or they weren't known for these things, so they were exempt to being the judge. And so they bring this, this adulterous woman and they throw her down in front of Jesus and say, here's what the law says, she should die. And, and they were testing Jesus because they knew that Jesus had a tendency to hang out with sinners. Like he had, a, he had an affection for people who struggled with sin, and they were wondering, well, what's he going to do? If the law says she should die for her adulterous affairs, then, and Jesus says, never mind, that he has now lowered the standard of God's holiness, therefore we got him, right? It was all about a trap. And so you know the story. Jesus just stoops down, and he starts to write in the dirt. And then he looks up at the religious leaders, and he says, okay, here's what we'll do. Whoever's without sin, you can chuck the first rock. And they peeled off, one at a time, from the oldest to the youngest, recognizing that that statement alone caught them. There isn't anybody without sin. There's an obscure story in Genesis 38, okay? And I shared it last hour, so I'm gonna try it again. Hopefully it's not gonna take too long, but it's a story, you don't have to turn there, but it's a story of Judah and Tamar. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And, and the story goes like this. Judah had three sons, and he was obviously a bad dad, and he had bad kids. God took two of the oldest sons out, but the oldest son had married this girl named Tamar, and he died. God said, I killed him because he's just a bad dude, and so the, the culture was that this wife would have to go to the, to the next one in order, birth line, the son, in order to maintain the bloodline. Well, he dies, all right? So, so far, <laughs> nobody's doing well with Tamar. There's one son left, and Judah says, let him grow up. Let him get old, and, and then we'll see, and uh, but that wasn't happening. I think at this point, Judah said, I'm not, I'm not going to risk another kid with Tamar. And so uh, Tamar knew this. And so she concocted a plan. I, I, I need to have this bloodline carried. So she pretended to be a prostitute and covered her face and hung out at the city gates. And Judah, coming into town, saw this prostitute and said, how much? And they negotiated the price of a goat. And she said, well, how do I know you're going to pay me? And he said, well, give me, she said, give me your rod and give me your signet ring and and then I'll know and so he goes in with her and she gets pregnant and he goes to pay her and he sends some people to send her to the goat he can't find her and he said where was that temple prostitute and they said there's no such there wasn't one there hasn't been one you're crazy so he just kind of out of sight out of mind forgot about it 3 months later the news comes out that Tamar's pregnant <laughs> and, and Judah says she's got to die for her immorality she needs to die And so Tamar just simply sends Judah back his cane and his spring and says, the man who got me pregnant owns these things. And Judah said, she's more righteous than me. Great story to describe the natural tendency in the human heart to see sin clearly in someone else and think it needs justice and wrath and death or whatever. But in our own life, he can be as adulterous as he wants to be and he's okay. Or how about we use this last week, David, David and Bathsheba, right? David, Um, minding his own business, he's a woman wants the woman. He calls for the woman, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, let's cover up the sin. And so he has her husband put on the front line. He dies in battle. Now, I don't know how many months have gone by, but he's now past it, right? He's taken Bathsheba as his wife, and everything's cool. The woman that he wanted is his. Her child is going to be his. Everything's cool. And yet this guy shows up at David's door, Nathan, and he says, hey, I got a story to tell you, king. What's the story? Well, there was this rich landowner who had many sheep. And there was this poor farmer who had one sheep. And because he had one little ewe lamb, he loved that lamb, kind of like part of the family. He ate off the table, and he used to pet it, and whatever. He was really into this lamb. Well, the rich man had visitors come and see him, and he knew he had to feed them. And so instead of taking a lamb from his own flock, of which he had many, He took the poor man's ewe and killed it and sacrificed it. And David is listening to the story and going, really? Are you kidding me? That man should die. He should pay. He should pay. He should pay. And Nathan just says, you, O king, you're the man. God gave you everything. He gave you all the king's wives. He gave you more if you needed it. You had everything at your hands. But because you took what didn't belong to you, now this judgment is on you. David could clearly see the sin in that story, but couldn't clearly see the sin in his own life. Do you see? That's the tendency that everyone has in their own heart. The moral, good, man after God's own heart kind of dude, he has a tendency to go, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. I don't deserve the wrath of God. And Paul says right out the bat, you have no excuse because you practice the very same things. And in your lying and living a lie, in your hypocrisy, you added to it. You're twice as condemned. Make sense so far? Here's the second thing. Absolute of judgment. Verse 2, God judges according to truth. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That verse scares me. It's a frightening thought to know that God rightly judges. In, in other words, God never misses. He, he never misses a sin. He never uh, is wrong about an assessment. He never sees something that isn't there or, or doesn't see something that is there. Our God is crystal about sin in every human heart, every precise human heart. Let's say the human heart was like a room. And let's say that room had many, many, many extra rooms, rooms where you thought you could lock doors and close windows. Well, God has access to all those places. He knows where you hide your lusts and your desires and your sins and your secrets and your wants and your quits and everything else. He sees it all crystal clear. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about this judgment of God. He says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Listen to this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So when Paul is trying to present to the good person, That he has a need called Jesus, just like the rest of sinful mankind. He goes after their morality and their goodness and their excuses and says, God knows. He knows you have a sin problem. Nothing is overlooked. Everything is fully known. One of the wonderful joys of the gospel is to know that God sees all of that, and yet he still loves you. What's terrifying apart from the gospel is to know that God sees all of that. Because you're going to be judged to the core of your being. You get that? How how awesome is it to walk in the freedom that Jesus describes in the New Testament when you know that God sees every single thing you've ever done from the beginning of your life to the end of your life and every motive and intention of your heart, and he loves you with an unquenchable love. How great is that story? But how brutal is it for you to go, No, I'm just going to keep propping up the secret. I'm going to keep pretending that it's real. I'm going to still try to be better than some. Maybe I'll get in on an exception clause. Maybe somehow God will look at me and go, well, you're, you are really pretty good. Well, I'll change some of the rules for you. Like we're twisted in thinking that somehow morality or goodness merits any attention from the holy God of the scriptures. It doesn't. So, and one more thing about it, his assessments are accurate. Have you ever had anybody misfire on a judgment on you? like accuse you something you're innocent of, measure your motive or whatever. I had that happen. I've had it happen. Th- about 12 years ago, I had a, a, a man, a leader, actually, set up a big meeting with me, you know, wanted to talk about something. I didn't know what it was, and he sat down and said, listen, I've been, I've been bitter at you for tw- two years. And I go, really? What did I do? Holy cow. I was ready to just cough, cough it up and confess to everything. But, but he said, I waved at you. When you were walking through the courtyard and you didn't wave back. (laughs) Um, Now, I I said, really? That's what this is about? I said, well, first of all, I wouldn't ever do that. Even if you were my greatest enemy. If you waved, I'd wave back. That's just kind of. And the second thing is I don't see people very well. And when I'm on mission, like if I'm going somewhere doing something, you know, the world gets blurry all around me. I see the goal, but I don't see people. So it was at least unintentional possible that I wasn't even there and you were wrong, but you carried bitterness for two years over that and your assessment was wrong? Talk about wasting your life. God doesn't waste it. God in his precision sees everything. When you think you're doing it right and you're really doing it for you, God knows. When you pretend to be something you're not, he knows. When you're putting on a happy face and thinking that somehow church attendance or whatever is going to have God smile on you, he knows. And that could be something as gory as actually committing all the sins that Paul has just described in chapter 1. And the fact that no one knows, he knows. So, there's a third absolute of judgment in verse 3. You can't escape God's judgment. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul has just asked the question, what's the answer? Let me read it again. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? What's the answer? No. You're not going to escape it. No one escapes the judgment of God. There isn't a person or behavior or religion or mindset or intention that escapes the absolute holy judgment of God. Now, you could be sitting here as a Christian, a follower of Christ, someone who says, I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, and that could have confused you to death right there. Wait a minute. I thought we were free. I thought in Jesus we're free, and that that is true. But I want you to understand something. Judgment never goes away. Let me describe what I mean. God can't look at sin and say, Okay, never mind. He can't say, um, you probably meant well, so I'm gonna read into your motives because God knows motives. God can't ignore it, overlook it. He's not gonna get distracted on some other task. God keeps copious notes on every sin of every person who's ever lived. He can't overlook sin. Every sin will be judged. The question about judgment is, will he judge you? Or will he pour out that righteous wrath on Jesus? There's only two options for judgment. See, you you have to understand something. 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross, he was intentionally going there to bear the overwhelming tidal wave of God's wrath for sin. He bore every bit of it. He drank every drop of it. He never blinked. He never said that one's too much or that one can't be applied. He took it all. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we do get freedom. God no longer judges us. We're not under condemnation anymore. We're under freedom and grace. Or you can say, like chapter one, I don't know if I believe this God thing. And I'm not certain I get this Jesus giving his life or my sin going to him or his right. I don't know if I get that. Well, if that's the case and you die in that condition, you face that judgment yourself. God is just. He can't overlook it. He will follow through. And the question is, where will that judgment fall? By faith, you can have it be in Jesus on your own. It's in a place called hell forever. And that's Paul's point here. I mean, he's building this like urgent case for our need for Jesus that hopefully every sinner, whatever version of sinner you are, from the gory God hater to the good moral person to the future religious person, that when we're all said and done, we got no excuses, we got nothing to offer, and we all fall in Christ. That's what he's hoping that this thing goes to. He's describing the wonderful news of the gospel. So, there is judgment for sin. Let me give you the fourth absolute of judgment in verse four. Don't make, this, don't make the mistake of thinking God's silence is his approval. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you're the good moral person and you say, I'm good, I'm okay. If you're the good moral person and you look at your life and you see that things are good and you have a great life and you got money in the bank and a healthy family, you got your own health and you've got, you got um, a good life. And if you make the mistake of thinking that that blessing means that God approves, then Paul's saying you're crazy. So if you look at your life and everything's been great so far and it is good now, that you don't have to worry about God's judgment, after all, God hasn't done anything yet, then Paul says that uh, you're refusing to see your sin, you're living a hypocrisy life, and you're presuming on God's goodness. Let me describe to you the word presuming so you know what this is, because that sounds a little innocent, like presuming, like, I'm not certain I meant it. Here's what presuming means. It means to think lightly of. It means to despise. It means to treat with contempt. It means to mock. God is good, and God forbears with us, and God is patient with us, and we see the goodness of God, whether you call it God or not, when you breathe every day, and you love every day, and you live every day, and you eat every day, and you just have a great thing that God is the author of, and you're just sucking it down and loving every bit of it, God says you're mocking every time he's kind to you, every time he's benevolent to you, every time he gives to you, you're just treating it with contempt. I suppose if there's a message to preach to an American group of people, this would be a good one, because we have a great life comparatively to the rest of the world. We got it. We got it pretty good, right? My, my son just bought a house, and so he's collecting belongings in my garage, you know. But the other day I came home and there was a widescreen HD TV in the garage. He discovered it in the neighbor's garbage. Now, we had to go through the humiliation of digging in someone's garbage, but we're okay with that. We're all right. Um, (laughs) A working HD 1080p television big screen. Now, you go, that's crazy. That's our world. We got so much stuff, we just throw it away. We're going to go out for lunch this afternoon, and we're going to have a great lunch. We might even go home and have a nap. How great would that be? Watch a little golf on TV. Certainly get up tomorrow, maybe go to a job where they pay you really good money. You're planning your vacation this summer. You're going to go somewhere really, really cool, and you'll do absolutely nothing. They'll pay you to do it. (laughs) We have a great life. And God says, "I, I give that to you. I give it to you. I'm the author of everything good, and the good person looks at it and says, listen, it's all good. I must be good. It's, I have all this stuff, I've got my health, I've got my family, and clearly I'm okay. Let me, let me dig through these three words so you just get the weight of what Paul's saying. There's three words he talks about in viewing what God does in his kindness or his benevolence for, his, uh, for people. The word kindness means divine generosity. In other words, it means that God blesses you even when you're in sin and unbelief. God blesses you. In other words... People who deny God have good lives too. The word um, forbearance is the absence of hostility. God holds back his anger and he grants blessing. He doesn't judge sin immediately. The word patience is long-suffering. It simply means that God waits a long, long, long time before he gets angry. And Paul says, you people who are living good moral lives who think that the happiness of your life and the things you have in your life, that the sun comes down on your life and the rain falls on your life and your crops, that your family is in good health and that there's money in the bank and you think that somehow God's cool with your decisions and your behavior and your life, you are mocking the kindness of God and the forbearance of God and the patience of God because those things are only for one reason, because God is giving you space to repent. Repent. God is leaving room for us in the midst of having this wonderful life to see it somehow. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're hearing about sin even for good people and you call yourself a good person and you go, I didn't know God cared that deeply about sin or that it was that precise. Maybe God's got you here even in a very comfortable church building with air conditioning on. This is kind and he's allowing you to hear it for the first time so that you can turn from your sins to Jesus and have your sins totally and completely forgiven. Maybe that's what he's doing like every one of us, could see the criminal and and see the prostitute and the drug dealer and the murderer and say, God, why do you let it go on? Why don't you crush them all? Crush them now when the terrorists strike God before they even get started in their evil plans, destroy every one of them. The question I have for you is, is not why does he let like the obvious criminal go? Why doesn't he crush us? When you're at home and you're yelling at each other in front of the kids and you talk about how you hate each other and you don't want to be together, why doesn't God just smash you right then? When you cheat on your taxes, why doesn't God just crush us? When you lust after someone else that isn't yours, why doesn't he he crush us? Because his holiness has every right to, correct? There's one reason. Because God knows how stubborn we are. He knows how hard-headed we are. He knows how lost we are. He knows that we're foolish and we're broken. And so he leaves room for us to repent. He's giving us time to see our sin and to see Jesus the Savior and to turn to him. Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor back in the 1800s in England. He was called the Prince of Preachers, said this. It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still in penitent." And finds himself out of hell. The sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day, as that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest, that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the the table says, I have to support your body, that still you may have space for repentance. Repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, seem to say, we speak with you that you may be able to repent. And every time you hear a sermon, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and to live. God is slow. He is patient in his anger, but it's storing up, and it's storing up, and he will not turn it off. It will come, but he's leaving room for you right now. That gets us to the fourth Judgment. Absolute Verse five, there's a final day of judgment for those who refuse to repent. So if I'm sharing with you the benevolent kindness of God and the patience of God, waiting for you to hear about Christ and to see your sin as he sees it and to embrace his solution as, as the only way, and you still turn that off, and you still turn that off, there is a different kind of wrath that Paul is talking about in verse 5 than he has in chapter 1. Chapter 1 was talking about a wrath of God that is revealed simply to people who deny existence and want their sin. And he says, okay, get it. Go get it. Go get all the sin you want. This wrath is God proactively distributing the punishment. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about a day of judgment and destruction for all the ungodly, all those who don't have the covering of Christ over them. John writes in Revelation chapter 20. This is a passage nobody likes to look at, but it's true. Where he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not Found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Listen, I'm always like amazed the timing that God brings people to a service. You could be here for the very first time and we're throwing down wrath of God, hell stuff, and you're going, wow, this was a little bit more than I bargained for. But someone told me this one time. The most merciful, gracious, loving thing you can ever, to say to, ever say to anyone is to tell them about their sin and God's feeling about it. Because if you don't know your sin, even your sin as a moral person is in a grievous offense to a holy God, you won't run to Jesus the solution. You'll just keep going and you'll keep comparing to people around you and people who fail and go, I measure up pretty good. But you don't get to measure to people, you measure to God and everyone falls short Listen to one one writer talks about this judgment of God. He says, if the kindness of God's forbearance isn't leading you to repentance, then drop by drop and sin by sin, you're filling up the reservoir of God's patience until the dam breaks and you drown in a flood of your own sin. That's true. God might give you another year. He might give you another decade. He might let you live until you're 85. But his judgment's real. And the Bible's real clear about our sin. Every one of us are sinners. And God is a holy God and he must judge sin. And so Jesus is the only solution. The word is repent. If Paul is bringing up in five verses the condemnation against the good for misappropriated judgment either on others or themselves, the conclusion is we all need Jesus and we all should repent. I'm not going to take the time to teach this, but there's a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, that talks about the qualifications of repentance. Like, I use that word a lot, and I say things like, it's the greatest word I've ever heard, and it is. I've said things like, only Christians can repent, and I believe that's true. Um, but I want you to know that repentance is more than a feeling, Okay? You can sit here right now and somehow God and his spirit might make you feel something about your sin. And you go, oh, I don't like it. I, I feel bad about it. Well, feelings don't fix anything. Repentance does. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about an experience with repentance. There are two different kinds. There's a worldly kind and there's a godly kind. The worldly one and the godly one, by the way, look very similar. You have a hard time telling them apart. The worldly sorrow looks like tears and looks like fear and looks like anxiousness and I hate my life and all that kind of stuff that kind of godly sorrow looks like. But godly sorrow produces fruit, like hating the sin that hurt him and wanting to restore it fast and not caring about your reputation and cleaning up your act and turning from your sins. It's a true activity. And so I've got to tell you, if you're you're described in these five verses, if you're the good moral person, And maybe God has let you see from his vantage point, your guilt, my guilt, everyone's guilt. Then you need to know something that Jesus offers freedom. Jesus can take that. He died on the cross 2,000 years ago to bear God's righteous wrath for your sins so you wouldn't have to. He'll give life, he'll change your heart, he'll change your actions, he'll change your behavior, he'll change your destiny. That hell thing I read to you about Revelation 20 isn't for you. But it only comes one way, through Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. God, you're so awesome to us that you are patient and you're slow to distribute your righteous wrath for our sin. And you're doing it for one reason, because your love is so overwhelming. You love us. And there are people here who uh, heard that for the first time. God, I pray um, that your spirit would move in the hearts of those who've heard this message and that they'd run to Jesus, we pray.